Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insights segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping medical treatments today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli, and I'm joined here by my co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer. Our guest today is Dr. David Latshaw. Dave is the CEO and Chief Scientific Officer of BioFi, a healthcare fintech company committed to enhancing outcomes for patients and creating value for investors using their proprietary AI technology. Prior to starting BioFi with his co-founders at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he received his MBA, Dave was a senior scientist in the Advanced Analytics and Technology Group at Johnson & Johnson. Dave earned a PhD in chemical and biomolecular engineering from North Carolina State University. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Great to talk to you both. And it's always a little bit strange to hear my credentials read out loud like that, but thank you. <laughs> have to agree. Yeah. But um, before we get into this really exciting technology that you're going to tell us about it, I think uh, it's, it's a really unique interview that we have coming up. Uh, we want to definitely know more about you um, and, and more about the BioFi founder story. So yeah. if you could first just start off telling us a little bit about yourself uh, about how BioFi was founded at, at the Warren School and and really what the, the crux of what BioFi does. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I can start with my background because it's relevant to the story and I think you'll see how all the pieces fit together. So uh, like you mentioned, my background academically is chemical engineering and my research focused on computational biophysics uh, was specifically looking at protein aggregation for neurodegenerative diseases, and uh, also did some development of uh, force fields uh, related to protein aggregation using machine learning techniques there. And that's really where I got my first introduction to machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, From there, ended up at Johnson & Johnson. And within that group that you mentioned, my imperative was really to look at how I could create value using artificial intelligence. And the way that that manifested was a few different programs ranging from basically predictive analytics for manufacturing to uh, digital twins for cellular metabolism. And they ended up scaling up pretty large globally, gave me uh, an exposure to the business side of Johnson & Johnson. And that's what really motivated me to want to attend Wharton. Uh, That, and I was fortunate enough to get recognition from a few different organizations like McKinsey and Company, the World Economic Forum, and the National Academy of Engineers for the work that I did. So I got the support from Johnson & Johnson to go to Wharton. And ultimately, I was really planning on continuing my path at Johnson & Johnson at the time. Uh, My goal uh, at that time was really to see if I could Uh, within the span of my career, create a fully lights out manufacturing process, uh, continuous, uh, based on uh, automation and uh, artificial intelligence uh, for the industry. Now, I know that there's a few larger companies that just got formed over the last year that are looking at doing that. I think uh, specifically Resilience is one of them. Uh, Pretty awesome. But uh, my focus changed while I was there. Uh, there was a lot of big life events. My world perspective changed in getting the MBA. Uh, just very different background uh, than science and engineering, uh, you know, the knowledge base. That combined with the pandemic and really just taking an assessment of what I wanted to do with my life and what I would be most happy doing uh, made me realize that I wanted to spend the time working on something that was really impactful to me 
really challenging because I just really like working on uh, difficult problems and um, just something that could create a difference. And I ended up finding that in my co-founders, uh, Steve and Dan. So Steve is our uh, chief financial officer and president, and he comes from a background of uh, the investment world. Uh, he worked at a place called FS Investments. And before I even met him, he had been working for a few years on a concept around using uh, finance to help cure diseases. And that's really what we uh, started collaborating over. And the marriage of biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and finance is what really created the foundation for the company. And as we were going through the initial phases, we met our third co-founder, uh, Dan Shuba, who is uh, currently the chair of neurosurgery at Northwell, New York. And he really rounded out everything with the uh, medical and clinical perspective. So we met, I think, the second week of class, and we had been working on the idea just conceptually, uh, you know, since then. And at this point, BioFi has been in operation for about... Yes, nine months or so, uh, fully with uh, some of our with all of our current team members. Uh, but realistically, the ongoing work in the background uh, with the technology has been uh, since 2019. Yeah, so getting into a little bit more about what BioFi does, I, I, we mentioned in the intro that really it's a healthcare fintech company, um, which you, you don't hear so often. Um, so, can you explain a little bit more about uh, specifically what that means and and how you practically are reaching that goal of using finance to benefit uh, patients and individuals? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that everybody automatically thinks of when you know we talk about one of our core technologies around uh, predicting clinical trial outcomes is the natural extension to, well, that should be a great partnership with biotech and pharma. Absolutely has many applications there and you know, we could certainly get into that, but we realize that there's another side of the coin that nobody ever really looks at. And that's really the financial implications of clinical trials and how those propagate into the lives of patients, the companies that develop them, and all of these adjacent industries, uh, just to name a few. There would be um, insurance, there would be the actual capital markets themselves, uh, even things uh, that would may not seem obvious like real estate or human resources. If you're an executive looking for a job, naturally understanding the implications of drugs that are in a pipeline for a company that you might join and what those outcomes might be is relevant to uh, the compensation package that you might negotiate. And it all factors in. But nobody really pays attention to the financial implications of these things because rightfully so, you know, the focus is on the science because without that, the other things don't matter. But the downstream results uh, and the implications that they have are also really important. That's really what we're focused on. Yeah, that is a really good point. And I want to dig more into that. Um, but first, you know, for listeners that might not be very familiar with how clinical trials operate, specifically in the U.S., um, could you walk us through sort of the drug development cycle um, and at what stages, what applications are necessary at what stages in order the process of getting a drug approved? Sure. So the way that I usually speak through it is at a high level, and it also frames the way that we're specifically focused at the moment. And I can kind of tell you how that branches off into the future as well. So 
it's a very long timeline uh, from start to finish. Realistically, the research and development um, cycle can take uh, probably three to six years. And that's going from, uh, you know, basic research where you've got, I think the typical stat is about 10,000 different compounds. And you're really filtering that down to uh, some lead candidates and then optimizing those lead candidates until you go into your preclinical work. And, uh, you know, upon your preclinical results being satisfactory, which are, you know, usually animal studies, you're able to transition over to uh, making a IND filing in order to get the uh, drug actually registered uh, as a as a, a new drug that's effectively in process for clinical development. And from there, you end up going through three main phases of clinical trials, each which progressively require more capital because they're more resource intensive. They're, each of them are longer and all of them require increasing numbers of patients. Uh, everything which basically leads to more and more challenges, more and more risks along the way, um, but also necessary hurdles to make sure that what's being developed is uh, safe for patients, as well as actually, um, you know, worth bringing to uh, the commercial space. So phase one is typically focused on safety. And that's basically looking at the appropriate dosing ranges uh, and dosing regimens for the individual drugs themselves. Phase two is focused on the actual efficacy in humans. And that's basically taking the results and knowledge generated from phase one around the optimal dosing ranges and then applying it specifically with looking at, you know, if the desired outcomes in terms of treating whatever or whatever symptoms or disease you're looking at can be achieved. Phase three then is a much larger scale study where you're looking for um, statistical significance in terms of the efficacy of that drug, oftentimes in comparison to uh, a drug that is the standard of care or something that's on the market already to really establish uh, if it truly is uh, something that is actually superior or not. Uh, from there, you have effectively a uh, compilation of results uh, that span everything from the safety and efficacy to the manufacturing process referred to as um, you know, CMC uh, in the background. And all of those things basically form the application that you would put together to bring to the FDA and say, you know, this is everything that we have in hand. And, you know, this is the, the commercial filing effectively uh, for the drug. And realistically, the FDA is usually involved every step of the way along the process. There's usually communication back and forth about the trial structures and things like that to ensure that the correct path is being followed. And, um, you know, they're setting themselves up for success rather than coming down to the very last minute and realizing that they missed something completely. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a slam dunk. Um, you know, it's, it's really not. And I think the general statistics that people always hear about how difficult it is to get a drug approved really points to that. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic overview. Um, and I know the public has probably been getting a crash course in clinical trials, yeah. but it's always good to zoom out. That was wonderful. Um, so we know that clinical trials, in addition to all of the other factors you talked about, are extremely expensive. And in the past couple of years, the median cost of a clinical trial was around $19 million. And the mar global market size is estimated to be about $44.3 billion in the last year alone. 
it's only expected to grow further. Now, as you mentioned, we know that cost alone isn't the only prohibitive factor in trial success. It's other metrics like patient recruitment and retention. So in addition, I was wondering, in addition to these inefficiencies, if you could point out some others and also explain where you see AI, fintech, and BioFi specifically coming in to reduce these inefficiencies. Sure. So you, you actually pointed out something that people don't usually start with, which is great. Normally, when people think clinical trials and drug development, it's the, the focus is always the science. The science has to be there or else, you know, you have nothing. But uh, realistically, probably about half of clinical trials actually fail for non-scientific reasons. You pointed out uh, the cost and, and funding of, of actually completing these individual clinical trials. And it's really prohibitive. Uh, one of the reasons that I think people are sometimes confused about the amount of money that early stage biotech companies raise and why it's so massive compared to other industries is frankly because it's necessary. Um, you know, if you're at a at the stage where you're moving drugs through the clinic, the cost is very, very high. And it's, you know, not something that's just waived for early stage companies. Uh, the, so you have to have a large cash base to actually be able to execute on that. So that really comes down then to, I'll just call it generally the operational side of things. You, you pointed out things specific to the patients themselves. So looking at um, things like the enrollment criteria, for example, if you really look closely at enrollment criteria, it's a double-edged sword. You could have a very wide, unrestrictive criteria that will allow you to recruit a very wide patient base. And that may be good from the perspective of ensuring that you hit your enrollment targets, but that only really matters if the responses that you get from those patients are the ones that you want and the ones that will actually allow you to show the statistical significance for whatever drug you actually have. So then you ask yourself, okay, maybe we should go the other direction. But when that happens, you can make some very well-defined specific criteria. And you know the latest trend over the past five years or so is uh, the inclusion of biomarkers to screen for uh, specific attributes in patients. Doing that is great because you know exactly what you're getting, or at least as close to it as you can. But you're really restricting the pool of patients that you can actually draw from in order to get them into uh, those trials. And you actually have to find them there where they have to find you. And you actually have to be able to get them into the trial. And the other thing that you pointed out, Jenna, is the uh, retention. Once they're there, you actually have to keep them in the trial. And one of the things that I think or I hope is becoming a little bit more of a trend at this point is... Thinking about trial design from the perspective of the patient, not just uh, creating statistical significance. And what I mean by that is the experience that they actually go through during the course of the clinical trial. If you can design it in such a way that you get the results that you need, but the protocol is less burdensome or invasive, then it's a very natural way to increase the uh, retention that you actually get within the trial, uh, for example. Um, you know, so that's just really folk that that's just kind of looking at the individual patient perspective. But, you know, there are a host of other factors that are completely outside of that that can really impact things as well. And that can come down to, you know, just extrapolating out to uh, out from the patients themselves. Uh, geography. We talked about being able to find the, the patients that you need. And especially if you're looking at 
a disease area or if, especially if you're looking at a disease area that has a very small population, uh, potentially rare diseases or something like that. If you're looking at having clinical trial sites in a region that isn't co-located with people who actually have the disease or you're not able to work with them to actually uh, be transported to a place where they could receive the treatments, then, you know, you're, you're out of luck. Uh, so something as simple as where, well, simple at or complex is where you hold the trials or is really impactful as well. Yeah. So I just wanted to maybe take an aside to talk a little bit about policy. And, and I think where BioFi comes in and understanding uh, outcomes and success in clinical trials um, hinges on the company's ability to actually report those clinical trial results. Uh, are companies always required to report clinical trial results? And, and what are some examples of where a company may not report those results? So this is actually something that we've become uh, very big advocates of, and there's two reasons for it. One is operationally uh, driven, given that a lot of what we do is driven by artificial intelligence, access to data helps us improve uh, the algorithms that we use, but also thinking about it from the perspective of patients. The more information that is disclosed, the more information that other researchers have, and it can allow them to be informed about the paths that people have taken before them and make better decisions about uh, trial design or particular molecules or different mechanisms that may have information that's currently obscured because there was no disclosure about it in the past. And that's that's something that's that perspective is very important uh, as well. Yeah, thank you for that. I, and I, I think we here agree, too, that um, advocating for transparency in clinical trials is, is super important. Um, getting into more of the fintech of the healthcare fintech aspect of the company, the, the models used to really evaluate biotech companies based on clinical trial success or, or clinical outcomes. Can you give us just a brief primer on really the basic economic theory of valuation? Uh, maybe what metrics do you look at when trying to uh, evaluate a company and in, in specifically in, in the biotech sector? Sure. And, you know, that really, I think, is fundamental to what we do at BioFi, but it also is something that completely differentiates looking at investments in the sector from any, any of the other very popular ones these days, like technology companies. So the, the basic economic theory behind valuate, uh, valuation in biotechnology companies is that for these early stage companies that have no commercial revenue, the value is driven by the drugs that are in the clinical pipeline. And really what the markets are pricing is the chance that an individual drug will actually generate commercial revenue in the future and how much. And what's happening as a drug passes through each clinical trial phase is that more and more risk is getting taken off the table. And as that happens, the valuation of the company increases in proportion to the risk that's uh, basically going away by showing that the molecule has uh, the safety profile and efficacy profile necessary for commercialization. So just taking it one step at a time, uh, phase one is, I'll just use general terms here, the easiest. It's not easy, 
by any means, but the pass rate for phase one is significantly higher than phase one and phase two. And at that point, you have probably about a seven or eight percent chance of getting to commercialization. I think the pass rate for that phase uh, by itself is probably on the order of about 60%. In phase two, which is where the major value inflection point comes in because you're showing the efficacy in humans, you have a uh, pass rate of less than one third. I think it's usually about 28% or so on average. And after you make it through that phase, there's a usually a significant jump in valuation and you've uh, increased your uh, chance of getting commercialization significantly more. Uh, You'll see the same thing in phase three, which uh, on average actually probably has about the same level of de-risking associated with it as uh, phase two does. And a lot of times people generally make the assumption that once a drug is through phase three, you get uh, a really, there's a very, very high chance that it will be approved, but that's not necessarily always the case. Um, it's probably more like a, an 85 to 90% uh, chance that it will actually be approved at that point. And within the past six months or so, I think there have been some pretty big surprises uh, that people really did not expect uh, because they assumed it was a given that certain drugs would be approved. Uh, when in reality, uh, there were some things that seemed to come out of left field that nobody was expecting and the drug actually uh, did not get approved. So it it can happen. Yeah, I'm thinking of one major uh, controversy in particular and looking at how biomarkers have been, the role of biomarkers in terms of determining clinical trial success Mm -hmm. and what the consequence of that is going further. But that's more on an individual basis. So I'm thinking more generally to how when you're modeling in in your AI, how do you account for almost the unaccountable like that? You know, last year, obviously, a lot of clinical trials suffered um, retention. And we talked about, you know, geographic issues of patients actually being able to mm-hmm. go into study sites to actually have hospitals allowing studies to proceed. How do you account for unaccountable issues like that or rapidly shifting, I guess, FDA sentiment for lack of a better yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. FDA sentiment around maybe semi-controversial biomarkers. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first I do want to address the, the biomarker piece of it. And it's a little bit different than some of the problems that clinical trials have had in the past. And that's specifically around the population that's being tested within clinical trials. Historically, uh, you know, potentially as an artifact of self-selection uh, and the profession itself, a lot of the population that has participated in clinical trials has simply been uh, white males. And drugs will get approved on the basis of information and statistics derived from testing white males. And what has realistically happened over time is that there's been a lot of cases where once that drug is approved, and prescribed to individuals that do not fit that profile uh, out in the world, the drug has had very different effects uh, and potentially adversely so. And that, that's something that's really come to the forefront of people's minds uh, over the past five years or so. And, uh, you know, your comment on biomarkers really made me think of that as well. And I think one of the really key things there is that 
biomarkers being used in clinical trials to screen for a patient population where the drug is going to be most effective certainly makes sense. But obviously, in order to actually make that applicable in the real world, that's those same screenings have to be done as well. And, you know, there's a certain cost and complexity associated with doing that in practice uh, that, you know, was not there before these uh, biomarkers started being used. So that's, you know, that's just uh, ben- it's beneficial in that there's more targeted therapies that can be developed, but at the same time, it does layer on additional complexity. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. You don't know what you're missing if you're never screening for it, or you have complex barriers as to why people can't get screened for it in the first place. Agreed. And uh, I do want to answer your your other question as well around how do you uh, how do you screen for or how do you account for the unknown? I would never pretend that the systems that we've developed can account for absolutely everything. Uh, everybody that hears artificial intelligence and machine learning wants a magic crystal ball that is never wrong. And especially with clinical trials, that's not reality. So there's always going to be some portion of things that we cannot account for. And we will continue to improve over time and our uh, accuracy rates will continue to improve. But even extrapolating this out to 30, 40 years, uh, there's still not going to be a, you know, a perfectly accurate system out there that can do this. That being said, I think the benefit of the way that we do our work at BioFi is taking a more multidisciplinary polymathic approach to the problem rather than just focusing specifically on the information that people typically associated or typically associate with clinical trials, like the uh, structure of the underlying molecule, the property, the targets, the mechanisms, uh, some of the things that we alluded to before in terms of the patients themselves, uh, the geography. You can also take a view of the problem from other disciplines. You know, for example, you could really look at uh, disruption with COVID much like a a macroeconomic shock, uh, like you would in macroeconomic theory. And naturally, it impacts uh, patient participation in trials uh, drastically. But unless you're looking at it for modeling it from a, a more, much more high level perspective than you would otherwise, if you're just focusing very narrowly on say, the mechanics or the operations of an individual hospital, you're going to miss the much larger picture that could be had if you're taking a perspective outside of the typical disciplines that look at it. So that's one of the ways that we look at this these problems is trying to formulate uh, different systems and mechanisms that would actually describe the dynamics behind clinical trials but they don't necessarily have to be traditional models that are always associated with them. Uh, that's the easiest way I can put it. Uh, so thinking more about the the sort of hard data, that, that was a really nice description of sort of how soft data can impact um, in the form of sentiment can impact uh, both clinical outcomes and, and approvals and uh, just sentiment from the industry in general. Um, but thinking about the, the, scientific data, there's also a financial component. Uh, you know, companies may have 
a certain amount of cash on hand to run a certain number of clinical trials, or maybe they raise money in the form of an offering or, um, or, or an acquisition. So, so what sort of financial metrics do you look at uh, and, and how important are those in, in driving this model? Sure. I can, I can give you a few examples. The thing is that they are well known to the financial community, but potentially not to scientists and engineers. And, uh, you know, that's something that I think is very beneficial. So one of the biggest ones for early stage clinical companies is their cash on hand and how that looks relative to the trials that they have ongoing and when they're expected to read out. So the way that looks in practice is you can look at the rate at which an individual company is actually spending their cash, uh, and that can be operationally or running their clinical trials, but that will have a finite lifetime associated with it. If you uh, make some assumptions about that rate continuing into the future, and if they're very early stage and say they only have one drug asset in the pipeline, you can look at if they're going to complete what clinical trial they have ongoing before they run out of cash or after. Naturally, if their cash runway is going to uh, run out before they're expected to complete their uh, clinical trials, there's going to be a very large problem there. And just doing simple screens like that on uh, companies that really don't have great financial health relative to what they need to accomplish to be successful uh, is a very good way to look at companies that have potentially been mismanaged uh, and realistically uh, don't have a chance to actually move their drugs through the clinical pipeline because they don't actually have uh, enough cash to do it. On the flip side of that, you don't necessarily just have risk if you're running out of cash before you read out on your clinical trials. If you're a shareholder in a biotech company and they do have a reasonable amount of cash on hand, but maybe they have a very large pipeline behind them and they have a positive readout on a trial. What you'll often see if you go and maybe look at some some case studies is that they will have a positive readout on the trial. There will be a large increase in share price and subsequently the price will uh, fall straight back to where it was before or very, very, uh, very, very low uh, compared to that peak associated with positive results. And what that's typically associated with, if you go and look at the press releases from the actual company, is that at uh, 12 noon on some day, they will announce the positive results. And at 12.01, they will uh, disclose that they're also going to be uh, doing a, a round of financing uh, offering uh, up additional equity for the company, which dilutes the value of the shares uh, that are actually in the market. So they use the positive outcome of that individual clinical trial to generate uh, the enthusiasm they need to complete that additional financing. But for additional shareholders, it can actually uh, potentially decrease the value of the positions uh, that they that they do hold. And I think that there's a little bit of fear or potentially just intentional risk management that happens more often than not these days, where after these large clinical events, you will actually see the prices dip back down for a little bit uh, and people 
basically just trying to navigate those situations. And oftentimes after the uh, situation clears and, you know, it's, it's clear if one of something like that will happen again, uh, you'll see the share price come back up afterwards, but there's always a sort of impending risk that needs to be associated with the, uh, the capital base of the company relative to the clinical trials. So I'm wondering, and you touched on this a little bit in the beginning too, about, you know, your own background coming from a PhD and business background, who actually makes up BioFi? So who are the people handling all this data, running these algorithms, doing this risk management assessment? Yeah, We're very fortunate in that we've been able to find a group of people who are very multi-talented and enthusiastic about solving this problem. So because we work at the intersection of biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and finance, every person on that team has deep competencies in at least two of those disciplines. Uh, for example, uh, my you heard my background and I have exposure to all three of them. Uh, my co-founder, Steve, as I mentioned earlier, is very deep on the finance and biotechnology side of things. But two of the other members of our team uh, are, are very well steeped in biotechnology and artificial intelligence as well. Uh, one of them, Temple Hendrickson, has a background in chemistry, has uh, also worked at biotechnology hedge funds, and he's a monstrous programmer, uh, which which helps <laughs> a lot. Tejas uh, uh, Krishna Reddy has been uh, my partner in designing everything that we've done for years now, uh, since the beginning. And he's been instrumental in translating a lot of uh, the insight that we have into the systems that we use. Just as two examples there, we do have um, Labu Sharak, who's uh, actually one of our most experienced team members, uh, 20 years of experience as a data engineer, uh, a lot of it at Bloomberg, which helps on the financial side of things. And we've also got uh, Caitlin Jayan, who is our general counsel, who happens to have uh, deep experience in both startups and the world of finance. So we have a team that's very well-rounded in every sense of the word. And we're really capped out by uh, Samuel Corman, who helps us on the sales and marketing side of things and really helping us translate the work that we're doing to people's out, uh, people outside of the company in order to make sure that the work that we're doing and the goal of it isn't lost. I think oftentimes the focus is too deep on the technology and naturally the outcomes have to be there. But the long-term goal of BioFi really is to positively impact the lives of patients. And sometimes without people like Sam, uh, it's very, very easy to get bogged down in the details and forget to communicate that. But thankfully, uh, you know, he's there to guide us along the way. Yeah, I think that's a, a really nice transition into our final question, and it's a it's a broader question, really related to policy changes that you might envision, even outside of the scope of what BioFi does to reduce inefficiencies in healthcare, clinical trials, drug design. I know we had talked about transparency earlier, which is obviously very important, but but what else do you want to advocate for since you? Uh, are, are such an expert in these areas and and now you're working at the intersection of these areas? So the first thing that I would advocate for is something that we're definitely doing at BioFi. And I think a lot of companies have had the ability to either start from scratch or uh, 
begin integrating it into the culture of their company, which is really just embracing data and technology. We mentioned earlier around that three to six year sort of timeline classically for uh, identifying uh, potential drug compounds to bring into the clinic. Realistically, if you're using artificial intelligence to help either supplement or drive that process, you can cut two to three years off of that, uh, that timeline. And that's very impactful for patients. That's very impactful for companies and ultimately a good thing for everyone. The challenge there is that you either need to be a digitally native company built from the ground up in order to actually take advantage of that, or you're going to have a very hard time integrating that technology if you're, uh, you know, say a very, very large uh, pharmaceutical uh, company. In doing so, I think there's going to be a lot of acquisitions in that space, uh, simply because it's just too hard to build a team from scratch internally to do so, uh, or at least justify the resources internally to build it rather than bringing it in from the outside. I think that can be applied broadly across pretty much every area end-to-end from R&D all the way to the commercialization. What we're doing highlights how you can utilize that technology within that space in the middle, uh, within clinical trials. And then uh, on the uh, commercial side as well, I think that there's a lot of applications. From a policy side of things, we did talk briefly about the transparency and disclosure. And rather than suggesting something different in that particular arena, I think what I'd like to see is more enforcement of those actual policies. I think as far as the, if I'm not mistaken, there's only been one such enforcement since that policy was put into place, being effective all the way back from 2007. And that just happened last year. And it was only for $10,000. Whereas if you total the amount of outstanding fines that could be collected uh, based on the information that has not been disclosed, I believe it's over $23 billion. Wow. You know, it's a very simple thing that could be done. The data is there. It's a choice. And it's something that I think that should be advocated for and realistically in the day and age of ESG and trying to do good for society, it should be something that is on the priority list for these companies. It's understandable how they may believe that it will put them at a competitive disadvantage, but ultimately I think the good that it will bring them in the perspective of the public uh, probably outweighs that, especially if it's clinical trials from back in 2008. I mean, come on. I think at that point, <laughs> you can put the data out there. Yeah, I appreciate your reflections on on public sentiment around the industry because it, it's been poor recently and even through the pandemic. And I think that there are things that, that we as an industry have not done right. But at the end of the day, what's important is the development of life-saving and life-extending medications. So so I'm, I'm glad that you have a focus and uh, advocating for finding more ways to do right. Always. I appreciate that, Joe. Dave, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and you know, talking about BioFi as well as getting into broader policy discussions with us. We really, really appreciate it. And yeah, just thank you again so much. I really do appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it's actually quite nice because oftentimes we don't necessarily get to have discussions around 
things that are outside of, um, you know, the mechanics of the company and exactly what we're uh, up to on a day-to-day basis. But the things that sit behind it are often the most important, you know, what actually drives the company? What do we care about? And unless people understand that, I think it's uh, really hard to understand where we're coming from and why we're doing what we're doing. And uh, for us, that's actually probably the most important thing. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glatzer. And I'm Joe Barrielli. Thank you for listening.